God's Word. I invite you to turn with me back in your Bibles to the first passage that we read together in Isaiah chapter 13. We return this afternoon to our study and exposition of, of Isaiah's prophecy, and we pick up here in chapter 13. The first verse reads, the burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see. Empires rise as superpowers uh, in the earth. And to be honest, at, at the time, it's really hard to imagine the world without them while they exist. They really do seem as if they are a permanent feature that the world couldn't be without. And this is true in ancient times. You go back to Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, who referred to their empire as Rome eternal. Or you think of times closer to our own. You think of the Ottoman Empire, which lasted 500 years and only came to an end after World War I. You think of the British Empire. And of course, you think of the USSR, and perhaps we think most of all of our own. Empires rise as superpowers in the earth. But you know, seeing up close blurs our ability to see accurately. So at the time, it seems like you can't imagine the world without them. But seeing up close blurs our ability to see accurately. So you take, for example, children, a blade of grass. You get down on your hands and knees, put your nose in the, in the, uh, the, the yard, and you pull up a piece of grass. And you begin to look at it closely, right? You can see the texture. Wow, there's way more texture than you thought. You notice that there's more than one color, various colors that are in that blade of grass. Uh, you, you look at all of the details. You can smell it. You can taste it. You can even take it inside and put it under a microscope, perhaps. And then, wow, you know, a whole world opens up. There's like a whole world in itself within this, this blade of grass. It seems big. It seems very big. But then you zoom out, right? You look at a, a square foot in the yard. It's like, oh, there's a lot of grass in that square foot. You lift up your head. You see the whole yard full of grass. Or you're in another place, perhaps, and you see acres of, of grass. And then you think to yourself, well, it was just a single blade of grass after all. Right? You're able to take it in within the greater context. And so if you go week by week, listening to whatever era, our own including, week by week, listening to the unfolding events and news of the empire, it seems huge. It seems super significant. It seems very, very important. One thing that could help cure you of this is to commit yourself for a year of reading last year's news on that same day. Do that for a year, and you'll be cured, I think, of any addiction uh, to, to, to such things, right? Because you'll begin to realize there's a lot of theater that is soon forgotten, even in our own day. Well, the Bible brings us back to the basics. The Bible is always bringing us back to the basics. 
And it is teaching us that there is only one kingdom. There's only one kingdom that counts. One kingdom that really matters and ever has mattered, has ever mattered. There's just one, and it is Zion. It is the church of, of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is the only kingdom that endures. Endures and has endured throughout history and will endure into eternity. What Rome tried to lay claim to and was made a fool for is what really belongs to Christ's kingdom. It is the kingdom eternal, the kingdom of God's only begotten Son. So here we are in Isaiah 13. What's happened is we've reached a new section of the book. So beginning here in chapter 13, and really over the next 10 chapters or so, uh, we have uh, a recurring theme, God bringing his word to various people groups, various nations. So in the first 12 chapters, um, what was the problem? The problem was primarily the northern kingdom of Israel being a threat and Aram being a threat uh, to Judah. So that was kind of laying in the background. But now, beginning in verse 13 and following, the Lord casts his eye abroad, and he begins to look at the neighbors of Judah and to consider their place and role and future and the consequences for God's people as a, as a result of that. And so in chapter 13, he begins with the biggest, and that is Babylon. For Judah, this is the big one, and proves so uh, in its unfolding history. And so the word here is to Babylon, and we're going to look in detail at what it says, but we're also looking, uh, we're, we're looking with a view that this is a, a pattern that will be in part recurring. Scenery is going to change, details will change, and some of the big components will change. But we're really seeing the rise and fall of empires. And we begin with Babylon. So there are three things this, evening, or this afternoon that we will be considering with regards to the rise and fall of empires, and specifically Babylon. First of all, the doom. First of all, the doom. Verses 1 to 5. We've read this. Uh, section earlier, but picking up at verse 2, lift up, lift ye up a banner upon the high mountain, exalt the voice unto them, shake the hand, that they may go into the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones, I have also called my mighty ones for mine anger, even them that rejoice in my highness, the noise of a multitude in the mountains, like as of a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the host of the battle, they come from a far country, from the end of heaven, even the Lord, and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. You look at history and you recognize that, that some, God causes some empires to slowly peter out. So he causes them to slowly peter out, and then God flicks them off the stage into the garbage pail. Examples would be Rome or the Ottoman Empire. But, on the other hand, God sometimes causes empires to experience sudden, surprising, catastrophic collapse. And this, in fact, is more frequently in the list that I started with 
in, uh, at the beginning of the, the introduction this afternoon. But you'll recognize that in both of these scenarios, all that rise eventually fall, one way or another. Empires are inherently self-destructive, that's true. But above that, God is sovereign. He will share his glory with no other. He will not countenance rebellion, defiance, and the dishonor of his glorious name and his holy law. God is sovereign. And so he will use empires and then dispose of empires according to the outworking of his own all-wise counsel and, and will. And all of the pieces that are moving with the Lord allowing the rise of one and then disposing of them and the rise of another at the dead center, of course, is the kingdom of God. And all of these other things are window dressing. They're all, they're all there to play a role in God's plan that pertains to his church, which is dead center. And you see that here. You see that in the account given to us in chapter 13. You see it throughout the whole entire Bible. So here is Judah. At present, in their present circumstances, the biggest threat to them appears to be Assyria, theoretically, right? Assyria ends up coming and sacking the northern kingdom and taking them off into exile. You know, Judah could be tempted to kind of align with Assyria in order to gain advantage over some of their own menacing enemies. But it is actually Babylon that is the big one. You know, Babylon is, is, is going to destroy Assyria, as God prophesied and predicted, purposed. And then Babylon's going to come for Judah. And Judah will be taken into the Babylonian uh, exile. So here in chapter 13, the Lord is beginning to, to open a window and to enable uh, his people to see what is coming. He's foretelling of things that were absolutely unseen at the time. So at the time, Assyria is the superpower. Nineveh, its capital, phenomenal, glorious, influential. It's ruling. The Lord is telling about a time that they couldn't see at this point when, when Babylon is actually going to rise to prominence, defeat Assyria, and rule the roost for a period. But the chapter takes us beyond that because he's describing the end of the Babylonian Empire, not its rise or beginning primarily. And in, in reference to that, he speaks of, here in these opening five verses, declaring doom, he speaks of how he is going to raise up a people to come and sack Babylon. And you don't discover till later on in the chapter who that someone is. It's the Medes in the northeastern part of the Babylonian Empire. They're going to consolidate power, and they're 150 years from the time that Isaiah is writing, going to actually bring these things to pass. You say, well, how could all of this, how could Isaiah write all of these things? Because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah can't see the future any more than you and I can. But God sees it because he's the one who's determined it. He has planned it. And so he has innate ability to then reveal what is actually going to happen. What happens with the liberal scholars is they come to places like this and say, well, it's impossible Isaiah wrote this. Right? There's no way Isaiah wrote this. Why? Because Isaiah could have never known about the Medes and the Persians or about the rise of Babylon and so on. Exactly. There is no way he could have done it. 
This is the supernatural work of, of God himself in giving to us revelation. Be not surprised, my friend, because the Lord has still done the same. He's given to us a revelation about all sorts of things. Romans 11, what's the future of the Jews, the Gentile nations. He's told us about all sorts of things that have to happen between now and the coming of Christ. He speaks about the, the overthrow of the man of sin, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, the fall of spiritual Babylon. He gives us all sorts of details about what is going to happen that is future to us, but we know now with certainty because God himself has revealed it to, revealed it to us in his word. And so there's the, Babylon, the Babylonians. They rose at the end of the 7th uh, century BC. Like every empire, they have an expansionist policy. Right? They're always looking to, to meddle and interfere in everybody else's business, to, to expand as much as they can, their own interests, and so on and so forth. And that ends up enveloping in time Judah. And they're sacked in three stages. They're taken into to exile, which you can read about in the Kings and so on. But what's the description of, 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 of Babylon itself? Well, it's full of pride, right? You, you see it if you look ahead to verse 11. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, will lay low the haughtiness of, of the terrible. This is important background, right? Because the Lord is coming with the purpose of humiliation, not just defeat, not just set aside, but utter humiliation because of the wickedness of who they were and the arrogance with which they carried out their, their wickedness. And really Babylon, I'll come back to this in a few moments, but Babylon, incomparable in terms of other ancient empires, really and truly dazzling, remarkable, if you, if you study it, glorious. And yet the Lord describes this message as the burden of, of Babylon, and a burden indeed it is. Why? Because God is bringing war. Verse 4, the Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. God is the one who is at work here. God is the one who is at war with Babylon. And really, the Medes or the Persians or the Greeks and Romans and whoever else were to follow them, other enemies at the time are of little consequence when God is your enemy. When God has set his face against your nation, nothing else really matters. God is the one who's bringing war upon Babylon. Verse 5, it is the rod. Uh, it is described in verse 5, the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. And so these, interesting because the, they're described it's coming from a far country in verse 5, but if you look at verse 3, my sanctified ones, my mighty ones for mine anger, who rejoice in my highness. He's describing the Medes here, a pagan people. And he's not saying that they're redeemed and, and, and uh, submissive and following the Lord, but he's using language that makes clear they are his. They're in his hand. They're his instrument. They're, they're, they've been set aside for his purposes to accomplish his own will. And so God is the one designing everything. God is the one who is the first cause behind everything. And we as Christians, we, we know that so that when we're studying history, it is indispensable for us 
to study the second causes, to study the moving parts, to, to, to discover the means that were employed, the people and factors and issues that are at work. But as a Christian, we recognize that above all these things and beyond all these things is the hand of Almighty God himself. And that there is wisdom and power and goodness and purpose that lies behind what merely meets the eye. God's doing things for the cause of his own, his own glory. But here, what comes to the forefront in terms of this declaration of doom is that God is angered. Right? The Lord is filled with indignation. So nations never get a free pass. Nations have their own character. What's codified in their laws reflects that. The, 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 the character and actions and behavior of the people reflects that. And none of this goes unnoticed. And in the case of wicked nations who are in rebellion against the Lord, his indignation is aroused. It comes as a provocation before him. And so the Lord declares doom. And this is, to be clear, irreversible. This is unchangeable because he is undefeatable. It will be done. What he has declared here will be done, and indeed it was done. We can read it all. In, in what is given to us. He will destroy the whole, the whole land or the whole nation in, in verse 5. And so doom is declared by God. Why is this important? Well, we're looking at one particular expression, one particular instance of it. We're looking at how God is dealing with Babylon as an empire. But it actually, ref what God does reflects who God is, and who God is doesn't change. And therefore, what God does here is repeated in other contexts. We can learn something. God is the one who declares doom. That's true, my friends, for time and eternity. It's true in this space-time continuum. It's true uh, with regards to the unfolding events in our world. The Lord comes, declares doom, and delivers it. The Lord comes and he brings his judgment in time. But of course, all of that is a precursor. All of that is a shot across the bow to the world that the same and much worse is coming on the last day. Coming not only in time, but at the end of time. And so this is true of nations, but it's true also of the individuals that comprise nations. And it underlines for us, all of us, it underlines with sobriety the seriousness of our thought of God. The seriousness of our response to what God says, what God wills. Because whether an individual or a family or a you know, community or a church or a nation, those who rebel against the Lord will face his inescapable doom. And so it puts on our horizon the importance of dealing 
with the Lord on his own terms. What do we discover in this declaration of doom? We discover that superpowers are actually super weaklings before the Lord. Everyone says invincible, military strength that is unparalleled. You know, this is nations that are unbreakable. That's how the world has always thought about its superpowers. But they are super weaklings before the all-seeing eye of the Almighty God. So that's the doom. Secondly, we have the destruction. Verses 6 to 13. The destruction. Really, this, this section is, a, is dramatic, isn't it? It's dramatic depiction. I mean, we're given sights and sounds and smells, as it were. I mean, you hear of wailing and fear and terror and so on. And it's all set in the context of this. How ye for the day of the Lord, for the day of Jehovah is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Right? This, this dramatic depiction is telling us of the day of the Lord. And the language used here and uh, often in the prophets is language regarding judgment. So the day of the Lord in these contexts is the day in which the Lord drops the hammer. The day in which the iron scepter smashes the pot, pottery into shards. Right? It's the day of destruction. And so in verse 7, he, he, he speaks about you know, men who, whom everyone thought were mighty men, you know, phenomenal warriors, you know, those who were themselves th thought of themselves as mighty warriors. You know, could look at all their victory, all their triumph, all that they had accomplished, who could boast of, of, of these things. But when the Lord's day comes, verse 7 tells, tells us that these, you know, these men of prowess and, and invincibility faint. Therefore shall all hands be faint or fall down, and every man's heart shall melt. And so all those, those bulky muscles and all of the, the military prowess and power and so on, and it falls to the ground, as it were. Their hearts, which seemed courageous and invincible and powerful and so on, melt like wax within them. And you, you can imagine the picture that's being painted here, right? You have, a, you have a, an army that's set in array for battle, and there's a point at which they realize the overwhelming nature of their enemy. They're surrounded. They're being hit from the flank. They've got people behind them. The numbers are phenomenal. The artillery is overwhelming. And there's a point in which their mind snaps. And they realize we are sunk. We're finished. It's over. There's no way out of this. Right, that overwhelming sense where you're drowning, where you can't breathe, where you come to grips with. That's the picture that's being given here. He says that's, that's how they're going to feel. When the day of the Lord comes and he comes to accomplish his purposes, their heart's just going to go limp uh, within them. Verse 8 describes sheer terror. Right? They shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed. One at another, their faces shall be as flames. This is a picture of sheer terror at the destruction that the Lord is bringing. 
and it's desolation that he's, he's bringing, verse 9. It'll be cruel both with wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate. He shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it, right? Desolation, notice, applies both to nations, in this case, the empire of Babylon, and to individuals, right? What, what, is, a, what is a nation? It's not just a, a big chunk of ge geographical land, right? It's people that comprise a nation. When we speak about the defeat of a nation, we're not talking about changing the name of the, you know, the, the store on the sign out front. We're talking about the annihilation of people, those who inhabit it. The Lord says, I'm coming. Those who have committed sins are people, rulers and citizenry. And he's coming for the people, the individuals. He shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. What does this tell us? It tells us that sin is inherently destructive. At its essence, at its, at its very core, sin is inherently destructive. And this comes out really in verse 11 as well. I'll punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease. will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Right? Sin is destructive. And so what's happening is you have the outworking of a very basic principle. All sin, always, is destructive. And you then unpack that, the, the, the outworking of that basic principle, as you extrapolate and apply it across the nation, of course, the nation will then suffer destruction. You see the point. Sin kills. This is why Owen famously said, as everyone here knows, I'm sure, you need to either be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin does kill. It kills. It's self-destructive. This is true in nations. And they're, they're given over to death. Right? You, you see empires rise and you see the characteristics. Yes, there's the the trappings of consolidation, centralization, all of which are telltale signs that evil is, is, is brooding, but yeah, expansion and all that sort of thing. But beyond that, right, there, there is in the character of these empires a giving over to death. Pick any of them, really. I mean, you look at, look at the Roman Empire. It doesn't really matter, right? They, they all morph, they all shift, they all slide, they all move in the direction of death. So that death becomes a characteristic of, of the people. In contrast to this, grace imparts life. Grace, the opposite of sin, imparts life, which is the opposite of death. The Lord brings newness of life, eternal life, he brings living souls into existence, right? Souls that are renewed, that are regenerated, that are quickened, made alive un unto God, that were previously dead in sin. He brings bodies resurrected unto honor and glory, right? This is the Lord's work of grace. And where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Grace is far more powerful than, than sin is. Much easier to kill something than it is to bring it alive. 
Right? The power of God's sovereign grace is, is at work. So we need to recognize here that sin, it's not just, you know, this empire and they're bad and they're doing wicked stuff and then they're hurting a lot of people and so on and so forth. Recognize the nature of what's happening, the nature of the thing itself. The Lord says in response, destruction's coming. In verse 13, he's going to shake heaven and earth. So what does, that, what does that bring to mind? I mean, for most of us, we think of an earthquake. So I don't know if anyone here has been in like really big earthquakes, not just the little tremors, but the really big, I haven't, but the really big earthquakes, right, that are actually the ground is pounding, shaking, right? The, the result is a sense of um, not just unease, but a sense of losing all orientation when the ground under you is, as it were, you know, quaking under, under your feet. And he's saying here, I'm going to shake, I'm going to shake the earth and the heavens. That the entire thing, it will be as if, you know, you take a, a stuffed animal in the mouth of a dog and it's just shaking it until stuffing is fl- flying everywhere. This is the picture that's given to us. The Lord says, I'm coming. The day of the Lord is coming with judgment upon Babylon, and it will be like shaking the cosmos. Some of the language that we get in this, in this chapter carries over, doesn't it? It carries over into Revelation. We have some of the language, for example, in Revelation 6, which is picked up there. Most of Revelation is drawing from the language of, of, of the Old Testament. But in particular here, we read in our New Testament reading on purpose, of course, Revelation chapter 18, because when the Lord goes to describe the man of sin, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, when he's describing uh, her as a whore, as a mother of harlots, you know, as drenched in the blood of the saints, describing her as one who is raised up above all others, speaking great swelling words, taking the place of God, Second Thessalonians 2, all of this sort of language, he ties to this imagery and calls her, Rome, spiritual Babylon. And when he goes on to describe what's going to happen, when the Lord brings down the whore, the spiritual whore of the Roman religion, it's depicted in language that's very similar, utter destruction. Notice when we are reading in a day, in one hour. It's not one of those that'll just kind of, you know, peter out a little. No, the Lord's hammer is going to come and he's not going to let anybody miss it. No one is going to be able to fail to connect the dots. It will be world transforming. The whole earth will sit up and pay attention when the Lord comes from his, for his arch enemy and completely obliterates it, breaks it, devastates it humiliates it, sacks it, leaves it utterly destitute. This is the language that the Lord gives. You know, it makes your heart tremble a little, but it also does something for for those of you who know your Bible and know your history. It does something that that touches you uh, emotionally because you, you think of the history of all of the countless thousands of martyrs whose blood was spilt 
and some of the most horrific forms of torture that the world has ever known because of their defense of the gospel. You think of the fact that the present hour, one billion souls lie under the bondage of this demonic wickedness, which casts its shroud over immortal souls. You begin to think deeply about these things and you begin to understand, I can see why in chapter 19, we're gonna scream hallelujah, that we are gonna praise the Lord at the destruction and defeat of spiritual Babylon, to see the Lord vindicating his own name, his own glory, his Christ, his, his one and only head and king of, of the church and his people. And all of this lies in the background. What we're seeing here in Isaiah informs and helps us with this. Well, the day of the Lord described here can be compared, of course, to the final day, that ultimate day of the Lord, the day of judgment. There, it's not just Babylon and its inhabitants or the Medes or the Assyrians, even Judah and Israel, but you have the whole history of humanity. Every, every son and daughter of Adam from the beginning of time to the end of time, all the nations, all the kingdoms that have come and gone, those known and unknown, they're all assembled before the throne of the Lamb. And there the Lord pronounces his judgment and his people. It is a day of triumph and rejoicing, a day of entering into the joy of the Lord. But for those who are in rebellion against him, it is a day that will make the heart sink. When all of the sudden, with an overwhelming, breathless sense of reality, that they're being cast forever, all of eternity, into the lake of fire which will not be quenched. My friends, these are very important realities for us to grapple with. Let these temporal judgments, like with Babylon, inform you and affect you and move you to dealing with the fact that we ultimately meet the Lord himself. We all do. And those who meet him outside of Christ will desire to flee from the face of the wrath of the Lamb and will be unable to do so. What's the answer? The answer is repentance. The answer is faith. The answer is coming under Christ. The answer is submission. The answer is to run to him, not from him. The answer is what we heard this morning about the open entrance that has been given in Christ and in the gospel and to be beating our way down that path fast and furiously with no thought of anything else that's more important to us than that. Well, secondly, we have destruction. Thirdly, we have dev the devastation, verses 14 to the end, the devastation. And this is describing in large part what comes in the wake of all of this. Among other things, you read these, they're difficult to read. You read some of the depictions given here, and there's even more difficult ones elsewhere. There is nothing glorious about war. There's nothing glorious about war. Only to those who read about it. 
with their feet up in a comfy chair, tucked away in their suburban homes. Real war is not glorious. War comes as a result of sin, and it is absolute, absolutely horrific. It's a nightmare. It's death. It's carnage. It is destruction of people's lives and families and communities and countries. Destruction of property. Right? The loss of societies. War is ugly. We're not to be rah-rah about such things. These things are very serious. And wherever there is unjust war, well, it's even worse, isn't it? Because now you have what is horrific, death and carnage, but it's murder. So we give this, we're given this description here, and we're told in verse 14, they're going to be chased, right? They're going to flee. They're going to flee everyone to his own land. And yet verse 15 says that as they're fleeing, they're going to be killed. They'll be thrust through. They can't escape. In verse 16, notice the language, and you're thinking as one who sings the Psalms a lot, you can't miss it. Verse 16, their children also shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes. You know that language. Psalm 137, happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. The last verse of Psalm 137, which is written about Babylon. Right? This is the psalm written along the banks within exile inside Babylon. It's the same thing. By the rivers of Babylon, they sang the song, Lord, remember, remember. And then, O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. We're tying pieces together here, connecting dots together here. Verse 17, we learn that this devastation will be the result of the Medes. As I said, what is it, 150 years? I'm, I'm, I'm round numbers from the time that Isaiah is, is writing here. And notice what it says. They're, they're not, they have one thing in mind, and that is the utter devastation of Babylon. They don't care about gold and silver. In other words, they're not going to be bought they're not going to be bribed. They're not going to be able to say to the Medes, look, we're Babylon, we have all this glorious stuff, you know, we'll give you stuff. They're going to be like, we don't want your stuff. We're not taking it. You're dead. We'll have nothing less. Verse 18, no pity. Bows shall dash the young men in pieces. They shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare children. There's no pity. And all of this, Devastation is against the backdrop of what? Verse 19, and Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency. And it's true, folks. The glory of Babylon was phenomenal. So if you haven't studied ancient history, if you haven't gone back and looked, you know, at these spectacular things that they created and built. I mean, there's a reason that the, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon are one of the, the great treasures, right, of the history of the world, right? They're, they're, they're gravity-defying. They're all sorts of amazing things, but their architecture, the, the, the progress in terms of engineering and science and art and all of the other things, it was 
spectacular. And in many ways, the glory of Babylon would cast into the, into the dustbin it's the glory that we think of in terms of the modern world. Really remarkable. And I say so not just because of, well, okay, our assessment and reading history. God says so. Not only does he describe here the glory of the kingdoms, but do you remember when he comes to um, Daniel and he describes history, four kingdoms that are going to unfold? Babylon is the head of gold. That's how God describes it, right? You have Babylon, then you have the Medes and Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans are the feet. That head of gold is Babylon. And, and Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, you know, you are that golden head. There's nothing like this. It really is phenomenal, glorious. So keep that in your mind. Keep that before your eyes and keep reading. Shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. When God overthrew the cities of the plain, what did he do? Fire and brimstone from heaven. He scorched the place to ash. Burned to embers. Gone, gone. So you go from the head of gold, the glory of the kingdoms, the excellency that is unparalleled, to nothing. Devastation. So devastated, verse 20, that it won't be inhabited. Inhabitable. It won't be inhabited. It'll be left barren. Right? He's saying even the Arabs, you know, the nomads, they're not, they're not pitching their tent here. There's nothing here to be, to be desired. It's interesting because it, it, it lay in utter emptiness, buried under the sands. Isn't it? It's only been like less than 200 years since the ruins of Babylon were discovered. I mean, now you can see all the archaeologists doing the digs and all the stuff they've come up with and so on. And of course, the British Museum has stuff and whatever it's been. Some of the things have been taken here and there and so on. But I mean, that's a long, 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 long time where, where it was left absolutely devastated. The most glorious kingdom, empire, the ancient world ever knew. And so it goes from pomp and prosperity to utter poverty. I mean, poverty is too strong. It's too nice of a word. It's too good of a word to describe it as poverty. It's deserted. The place is absolutely deserted. So that even at the time of our Lord, when, when the Lord Jesus was, was, was on the earth, there was nearly nothing there. Verse 22, And the wild beasts of the island shall cry in their desolate houses and dragons in their pleasant palaces. So here you see it's just, it's covered with wildlife and nothing more. So devastation. The Lord, when he comes, if he so determines, can leave it a howling wasteland. There is no empire in the history of the world, no superpower at present, and none ever to come that is so high that it cannot be left absolutely devastated, absolutely deserted. This instills the fear of the Lord. This 
delivers us from delusions. It delivers us from, from sort of um, absorbing the atmosphere that, that makes us think that, well, there, there are exceptions to the rule. And there are, you know, certain nations which are an exception to everything. If there was ever an exception, it was Babylon. We're not the exception by a long stretch. And so it teaches us our need, doesn't it? It teaches, okay, well, the nation, empires, empires get shattered to pieces. Rebellious, wicked empires, which have codified in their, law, in their official laws, explicit violations of every one of the Ten Commandments provoke the Lord. Empires which have citizens that are filled with what he describes as abomin- abominable and disregard of his law provoke the Lord. We need to recognize these things. And we need to humble ourselves, right? We need to be watching our own hearts. We need to be remembering that judgment must begin at the house of the Lord. We need to remember that we need to apply our own hearts and minds to, 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 to repentance. We need to pray that the Lord would be pleased uh, to grant light and wisdom and mercy and so on and so forth. Because he alone is the one who holds the balances in his hand. He alone wills what will be. In verse 22 it ends, and her time is near to come. Near on the Lord's scale. Right? Her days shall not be prolonged. It wasn't going to happen the next day. She hadn't risen yet, much less fallen yet. But as far as the Lord is concerned, and as far as, as, far as, as we're concerned, it's as good as done because the Lord said it. Her time is near to come. Her days shall be prolonged. And so here we see the rise and the fall of empires, beginning with the biggest, which is Babylon. We learn about the nature of sin. We learn about the need uh, for us to be watching, walking humbly before the Lord, and to be laboring and praying for his glory. We're ending at the end of chapter 13. It's heavy. All of this is heavy. But the very next thing that comes out of the Lord's mouth is bright. So if the Lord spares us, we'll come to chapter 14 and discover that all this heaviness is, 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 fills his own people with light, the good of Zion. Let's stand together for prayer. O Lord our God in heaven, a God who is indeed to be feared above all others, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. O Lord, teach us, we pray, to think biblically. Teach us to think thy thoughts after thee. Guide us with wisdom and light. Help us to hold fast to the book. Deliver us, O Lord, from the passing, fleeting, uh, defeatable empires of this world and hanging all of our aspirations and hopes and On these things, give us, O Lord, to live for that kingdom which cannot, will not, ever perish. Give us, O Lord, to give, to seek first the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We pray, O Lord, order the events of time and space, the nations and peoples, 
order them all for the good of Zion, for the advance of the cause of Jesus Christ, for the glory of our great King. We ask it in